Inescapably foreign. Welcome to Without Borders. I'm your host, Nolan Yuma. If you're if you've tuned into the show before, you know that this is for nomads, expats, immigrants, third culture kids, or anyone else that feels inescapably foreign. Today I have a very special guest on the show. I'm pretty excited. Mark Walter. Uh, Mark Walter, a PhD professor of marketing and an incredibly successful travel YouTuber. You may have heard of him. He has over 950,000 subscribers on just one of his channels. He has a lot more going on than just Walter's World, so we'll get into that throughout the show. But just to start things off, Mark, how are you doing today? I'm doing very good, Nolan. Thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, well, as you know, I'm excited to have you on the show. Uh, so, Mark, wh where are you right now? Right now, I'm in my office at work for my day job. I'm a professor of marketing well teaching associate professor of business administration in the marketing area and academic director of the marketing degree at the University of Illinois Geese College of Business. Very long time. I'm glad you used the title and that you didn't leave it to me. Um, and where, where are you located? So right now I'm in Champaign, Illinois. That's uh, where the University of Illinois is located. It's, so middle, middle of the U.S., a couple hours south of Chicago. Okay. And are you, were you born and raised there? Yes, I was born in Illinois. My dad went to the University of Illinois. My mom worked for the University of Illinois. My brother went to the University of Illinois. I went to the University of Illinois now. You know, I think it's one of their job placement things. They look at their alumni and say, well, they can't get jobs. We'll give them jobs later. So I've, I've been here for about 12 years teaching. So, But originally from Illinois, then I lived abroad for about 12 years. Uh, then when we came back to the U.S. with the kids and everything, I got a job here at the University of Illinois. And where did you live abroad? So let's see, I did my PhD in Portugal, so it was five years there. I did my master's in Germany, so I was there a little over two and a half years. I taught in Lithuania for three and a half years, uh, spent uh, a little over half a year in Argentina, half a year in Brazil. Um, and then I, try, I, I teach a lot abroad now, like in the summers and during breaks and stuff, so a lot of time abroad. Now, for all the listeners who are interested in learning about all the places you just mentioned, is it best for them to check out Walter's World? That's how I'm familiar with you. Yeah. Um, or are there, because I know you have some other channels on the go. Is there anything else listeners should check? Oh, yeah. Well, our, our main one, our biggest channel is Walter's World on YouTube. That's the best way to go to it because we have all of our stuff on there. If you want the do's and don'ts to go in different places around the world, you want those culture shocks you might not know before you go. We have that on YouTube. Also, if you don't like hearing my beautiful voice, uh, we also have blog versions of a lot of our stuff, like synopsis blogs on our, on our website, waltersworld.com. Uh, you can also find us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Pinterest, all the fun social media sites. So wherever you want to get good, honest travel advice, we're there to help you out. And if you want business advice, um, I actually do record all of my material I do for my courses in marketing, social media marketing, um, advanced marketing management. I have all those recorded. On, it's called Professor Walters. It's another YouTube channel or ProfessorWalters.com. So if you want to learn a college level course in marketing, they're all there ready for you to learn free of charge. Yeah, and they're great. I've been checking them out myself, <laughs> and um, we'll, we'll get into it a little bit later. I have some questions for you around that. Um, but first, from the places you've lived, uh, which languages are you keeping up with right now? So if you give me time, like give me a week like in-country, I'll feel comfortable t speaking well enough again that I wouldn't have a problem teaching in Spanish, Portuguese, German, and English. Um, I always like to say my, my, I, could, I could be a good drunk friend in Italian, like we can have normal, yeah. If we're going to go to the soccer match or the footy match, like we'll be fine in in, in Italian. Um, I could be a nice, I could be a very nice tourist and ask directions and have a very basic conversations in French and Lithuanian. 
Very cool. And from from any of those languages, are there any phrases or words that really stand out to you that you feel kind of captures the culture or maybe a word or phrase that just really resonates with you and you can't really directly translate it into English? Well, I mean, you have, like we, we actually say this in our family. There's a couple of things we say in our family. One is andiamo, which is like, let's go in Italian. But andiamo is more like, let's go, guys. Let's move it. Let's do it. It, it could be like an inspirational let's go, or it literally means we go. But it's more of these one of things like, hey, andiamo, andiamo. Let's hurry it up. Let's go. Let's do this. Let's go. Let's go. Like that's one. And then there's one fun way I always say, uh, na mesa, which means to the table or at the table, which is like our call to dinner at our house. Because my youngest, he was born in Portugal, and my oldest, he grew up there for a while. So that's like one of those things we brought back. So whenever, you know, like uh, the kids' friends are over, we're like, not this up. Their friend's like, what the hell? <laughs> it's like, uh, the dinner's ready. <laughs> I was, um, what about the Sobre Mesa culture? Do you miss Sobre Mesa? Uh, do, <laughs> were you not a fan? I, of I obviously haven't missed very many Sobre Mesas in my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think that is one thing I am. In the U.S., I don't really have a problem skipping dessert in the U.S. because it's not, I mean, yeah, it's special, but it's not as special. Like, when I lived in Portugal for five years, I mean, having the mousse de or the the, oh, the the passion fruit mousse in Brazil or the, the chocolate mousse in Portugal or, or or the, you know, the flan, it's like, oh, you got to have this. It's like one of those things, like, it's part of the meal, not a extra part of the meal, if you know what I mean. Like, it was just like, well, it's obvious you have that when you go out to eat, you have your you have the starter and you have the thing and you have the dessert. Whereas when we go out in the U.S., it's more like we might get an appetizer, but most of the time we don't. We just get the main thing and we move on, like have the main dish and we're gone. So I do I do kind of miss that. Like I'm, I'm teaching in Spain and Portugal this summer and I'm already like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I'm going to have my, uh, my, uh, my flan when I'm there and my creme de catalan. I'm going to have my, you know, all the all the good stuff I have, like all the eggs, milk and eggs, milk and sugar delights that they have in Portugal. So, yeah. What about sobre mesa in the sense of just talking at the table? Because something we bring up in a few of your videos that especially North Americans will be shocked with in not all European countries, but the service, right? And to say that the service is works in Europe, I think we can get in a whole discussion about yeah. that. Like from, from my personal ex, um, experience, a lot of what you say is true, right? Like the service is quite a bit slower. They, they might not always have the big smile on their face that you're used to in America because that tipping culture doesn't exist. But then on the flip side, in America or in Canada, if you're not eating anything and you didn't order a drink, you better get the hell out of there or they're not going <laughs> to, then the friendly service disappears. I was like, yeah. cut out. <laughs> yeah. So here you don't, you don't order a drink. Uh, you're sitting at the table with your friends. They're not going to say anything. The boss even might come sit with you for a bit. Yeah. Oh yeah, that, I mean it's a whole different set, and that's why when I, when I try to when I do a lot of my videos, I'll talk about the differences so people you know don't get upset because when when you're like if you're in Italy or you're in you know you're in Spain or Portugal, if you've got a seat, they they look at that that seat is done for the night, like they're like you're coming in to eat, we're not going to sell that table again ever. I'm not trying to turn you over in an hour to get somebody else there. So it's a whole different mindset. So in terms of I've got to get you filled up, I've got to get your order in quicker because I need to turn it over because. In 90 minutes, I have to have another table there. You know, it's a very different setup. That's why I, I try to explain to people. It's like, yeah, you'll go to a restaurant and there'll be nobody there, but they won't see you. And they'll say reserved on that table at 10 o'clock at night. And you're like, it's seven. Like now I can't take a chance that you'll stay there that long because people do. And trying to explain that difference is it, tough. And it goes both ways. You know, like I, I tell, you know, like Mary said, look, 
It may seem like they're not friendly, but they are super professional. And if you want to know what wine goes perfectly with any dish on there, they'll tell you. If you're not sure what beer you should get, they'll tell you. If you're not sure what goes right with that, what pairing goes, they'll know that. Whereas in the U.S., it's kind of like, let's see, which one is the highest one so I get the 15% on top of that? Yeah. You know, you don't have that. It's a different kind of, of service. Like I usually say, in Germany, you, you get you get super professional service. It is not friendly, but it is very effective, is very efficient, and will give you the right answer. So if you, it, it's more like people are, are trained more in their field so they can give you a better idea Whereas, you know, if I go to a restaurant in the U.S., I'm like, hey, does this have X in it? You know, if I have an allergy, they're like, oh, I got, I got to ask the chef. Whereas I went to Germany, they'd be like, it has this, this, like right away. They're like, it has this, this, and this. Are you allergic to that? You know, it's it's very much a different experience. And it's funny because I'll see it the same way because everybody's like, why are they so rude? Or I'm like, they're not rude. They're just professional. They're leaving you alone to enjoy stuff. Whereas on the opposite side, when Europeans come to the U.S., they're like, oh, my God, will they leave me alone for three seconds to have eat my food? Like yeah. I've called, I've, I literally just got my food and they're asking me how it is. How would I know? I've taken one bite. I'm like, well, that's the two bite check. You know, you're supposed to have two bites check to make sure everything's okay. They're like, oh, and people don't know that. I mean, it's nothing wrong. They just don't know. But it's just funny how you can see it from both perspectives when, when it's, when it's uh, comes to the service side of things. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing is I get drunk less quickly in Europe because in America or in Canada, since the service is so fast, it's like the second you finish your drink, do you want another drink? Or is it's like, yeah, two seconds. Yeah, was a drink? You're not even finished yet. It's like, I'm, all, I'm like halfway. I think it's funny. We were at a, I was at a bar the other day and we were eating like burgers and stuff, you know, they're eating. And I'm like, like my wife had finished her drink and I, and I'm like, like hers is gone. Cause she had like a gin and Coke or something or gin and, uh, no, she had a Jack and Jack Daniels and ginger, a Jack and ginger. And I had a beer, and my beer, I mean, not even, I mean, it's not even halfway down. It was a half liter beer. And I was like, oh, I'll, I'll, you want me to bring another one for you? I'm like, well, and then you feel pressure. Well, I guess so. And so they're, they're like, I got to chug this one down to get the next one because I, I don't want to look like an alcoholic with two beers in front of me, which just makes you drink more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, another thing here with the food culture is, well, me, I'm someone that I try and stay away from processed foods. I I eat pretty healthy. I love the Mediterranean diet. You look healthy, my friend. You look very healthy. I like you. A little head of hander there. Oh, for night. <laughs> I've always been someone that just likes to eat food from different cultures. And then sometimes people ask me, like, okay, if you could only eat from one culture, what would it be? And I usually say Amer uh, the United States. And then people are me like, what the hell, Nolan? Like, how often do you eat pizza and burgers? And I'm like, but that's that's not American food. Like, if you actually look at like what is American food, it's the most most multicultural food there is because American food didn't exist without Africa, without Ireland, without just this clash of cultures. Exactly. So I was wondering, like, what what you would say to some of the I don't know listeners or people who kind of come to America with this perspective, like. Oh, it's all going to be fast food when really there's, yeah. there's a rich. Yeah, that's what they, people always say, like, America has no culture. You know, that, that's, that kind of goes, there's no food culture. There's no culture there. You're too new. You're too young. I'm like, well, our culture is the world's culture coming together. You know, so when you go to Canada, like, we're, they're both melting pots. You have the cultures that shine through because you can get fantastic food from anywhere in the U.S. Especially if you go to larger cities, it's amazing, like, from Ethiopian to Egyptian to, you know, Chinese, you get all kinds of great stuff. Even in smaller communities now, you can get decent Chinese, decent Mexican food, decent Italian, like in little, you know, middle of nowhere places. Whereas, you know, you go around in some countries around the world, I was like 90%, 95% of the menus in the country are the exact same menu. Yeah, I used to live in Lisbon and when I lived there, I mean, it's become a very big tourist place now. So the menus got a little more advanced, like 
very varied for the the tourists that come in. But when I lived there, people were like, oh, I'm coming to visit. I'm like, well, we can go to any restaurant because literally 95% of the menus are exactly the same because they're all serving the same kind of, there's a few things different, but I mean, now it's better, but it was, it was one of those things. But yeah, you go to a country that has more very, very cultural kind of stuff. You have much more food variety. I love going to Brazil because you can have the, the the Brazilian steakhouse kind of stuff from the south of Brazil. But then you can have a carajé, which is like this bean paste dumpling stuffed with dried shrimp and batapá, which is like a, I, the, that would be like Brazilian stuffing inside of me. Like, it's amazing. But because the country has all these different regions, all these different styles, that there's not one kind of thing. Whereas if you think, oh, I'm going to eat Italian food, you're like, oh, there's pasta and some meats. You know, like it, it really limits it. That's why I like, you know, a Brazil, like for me, I love going to Brazil. I love eating Brazil just because you have such the variety in that culture itself. And that helps out. And so that's where people kind of think that they go, oh, only American, Americans only eat burgers and, and, you know, delivery pizza. I'm like, well, yeah, we do eat that. But if you have a really good burger, you go to a greasy bar, man, that burger is 10,000 times better than anything you're going to get at one of the fancy burger places that have got popped up around Europe, you know? Yeah, for sure. And another thing with that when people go to Europe and they're like, oh, there's so much more culture here. I, I totally understand the sentiment, but it's also kind of ignoring the indigenous cultures in America as well. Like in, they say, oh, in Canada, you only speak, well, two languages in one province, but one language overall in America. Or also, they say, oh, you speak one language, but that ignores like the 70 indigenous languages in Canada. I think mm -hmm. if we look at America, there will be even more. Um, yeah. And I think that's something that people have to keep into account as well. It's like a lot of their culture was oral, so they didn't have these written stories that got passed down and that information sharing that makes the culture in, in Europe stand out in that way. Yeah, and, and that's the thing throughout throughout the world. It's hard. If you don't have the written history, it's hard to know what the history was, so you kind of have to, like, dig up the past to figure out what's there. Like, there's a UNESCO World Heritage Site a few hours from here. It's the Kokia Mounds, and they were the mound builders, and they, they buried their dead in these mounds, these huge mounds, and back in the day, they, they, they dug it out, and there was basically was a tourist attraction to see, like, how the people were buried. And, of course, that was horrible. It was very disrespectful to the people. And so they covered them back up. And now there's this, this huge, like, center that's there. They're actually doing a, a remodel of it right now to really explain, this is what the culture was like. This is what they were doing. They weren't savages like people said back in the day. This is their culture that was here. How many hundreds of thousands of people were involved? And people don't realize that. That's why I say you go to the U.S., you know, go to the Southwest, to the U.S., because you can still see, you know, the... The, the the indigenous people that are there, but also like the history of the mountain, not the, well, the mountain builders are here, but you know, they're, they're built into the cliffs, you know, uh, you know, in the Southwest, so you can really see those. And, and then you're starting to understand, it's like, wow, there really was a lot here. Yeah, there was millions of people that got wiped out, you know, but that the cultures that were there, but we just don't know because there's not an easy to read, oh, here's the history of our town since 800 BC. Yeah, so therefore it, it cheapens it. And I, I think that's, that's kind of a sad thing. And that's one thing I've noticed when I have my friends from Europe, they'll come here, They'll be surprised, like, wow, how many museums there are here? And how many, you know, like, because they're thinking of museums is more like, well, if it doesn't have a Rembrandt and a, and a Van Gogh and, and, you know, and, uh, you know, Peter Rubens, you know, then what, is it really a museum? Like, well, no, but we have, we have, you know, you can go to the George O'Keefe Museum and, you know, in, in, in New Mexico or you go to Indianapolis, there's a huge you know, Native American and Western art museum. Like, that's our history. That's our art. Or you go to natural history stuff. They have, the U.S. has incredible natural history. You know, you can find out, you know, dinosaur, well, dinosaur national parties do different things, but there's all kinds of things you can go see. And that's where I'm like, look, if you want to, you want to see nature, go to the U.S. I mean, we can make fun of Europe. Where's your nature? It's all cemented over. You know, like, yeah, there's, there, you have mounds in place, there are some, but it's just a different kind of, different kind of setup. And so it's interesting to see people's different perspective on it.
Exactly. And sometimes that, that vastness of the nature, as you're describing, that is part of the culture, right? When people say, oh, there's, there's no culture here because no, there isn't a museum. That's yeah. high culture. That's a, that's a different definition. When we're talking about culture, we're talking about ideas, beliefs, technology, habits, and practices that we, that we kind of acquire from, from learning one, from one another, right? That doesn't yeah. always mean going to a museum. and Yeah. And, and that kind of leads into one, one of my favorite, like, like back and forth points between like um, people from the U.S. and Canada versus Europe is the whole distance culture. You know, like in the U.S., I mean, I, I literally would go have lunch with my mom. She lives about three and a half hours away. I'll leave in the morning, go have lunch, and then come back. I won't stop because I don't need to stop. I always drive over there, get some gas when I see her, and then drive back. No big deal. Whereas, you know, if I if I have to get a bus, like I, I take students to Europe all the time, and if we have to get a bus driver. We know every two and a half hours we have to stop and the bus driver has to have an hour and a half to take a nap, take a break, have a coffee, go poop, I don't know what else. And I'm like, in America, you literally drive seven hours straight without even thinking about it. Like that isn't even a long drive. Like over seven hours, you start thinking, well, maybe it's a little bit of a drive. You know, whereas, you know, I, I go on a road trip and I remember I, I do this girl in, in, uh, in the UK and she's like, okay, we need to plan out our stops. I'm like, where are we going? She's like, oh, we're going to the Lake District. You know, well, there's the Peak District. I'm like, that's like an hour and a half drive. I know. And she was like, it's so far. We need to have breaks. And I'm like, well, let me drive first. I just drove all the way. And she was freaking out. We're going to have an accident. You're going to be so tired. I'm like, look, I drove from Chicago to New Orleans in a day, like straight. That's 16 hours, 18 hours. I, it was not a problem. An hour and a half. I mean, that's literally traffic in Sao Paulo going from the neighborhood I lived in in Sao Paulo getting downtown was an hour and a half of the drive. I'm fine. But the thing is, for them, everything's so much closer that it's like, oh, well, you Americans always have to have your cars. I'm like, well, since it's spread out so much, you have to have a car because you can't get to the grocery store. You can't get to work. We would all love to be close to our work and close to our, our food sources just so I could walk there. We'd love that. But that's not how the cities were constructed. So therefore, you can't compare it because that's one thing that people really get really mean. And like, I mean, if you haven't noticed online, people can be a bit mean in their comments. You know, and that's one of those ones like you're fat because you don't walk there. Why don't you just walk to work? I'm like, um, because I literally live uh, 12 miles. So like, you know, 18 kilometers from my work. Can't really walk that. OK, you know, it's like, oh, you know, it's good. You know, I'll laugh and be like, well, why don't you just walk in from Segovia to Madrid? You know, I mean, if you if it's that close. And yeah, it's one of those things I'm not mad about or be it's just it's just a whole different set of how cities evolved because there was the space and it was I mean, there was nothing here. You know, 200 years ago, and so when you're building out, you can have space. Yeah, so it's just a different kind of thing. I mean, and you can see it influence in people's choices of dogs. You know, and 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 and, and other things. Like, yeah, I I have a city bike, whereas my kids all have dirt bikes and mountain bikes because yeah, they go off and they ride in the forest, they ride in things because it's a different way of how we live. Yeah, I'm personally happy that I was raised in North America for that because now that I'm in Europe, I still have that perspective, like a North American perspective of distance. So right now I live in a pretty small town and it's with the car, it's a 45 minute drive from Valencia or an hour and a half or an hour and 15 minutes with the train. And then people sometimes will ask me like, Nolan, you've lived all around the world. Like, how did you end up in Castellón? And then I, first of all, I love it here. Yeah. Um, but it's like my favorite city is actually Valencia. I like Castellón more to live because it's smaller. The nature is closer by. But then they're like, why aren't you in Valencia? And I'm like, it's 45 minutes away. Like to me, Castellón, this feels like a suburb. Yeah, Valencia, when really it's like eight cities away. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, no, that, that, that's the kind of that always kind of cracks me up is when, when I'll talk to my friends. They're like, oh, you're so far from Chicago. I'm like, 
the highway I live on literally goes straight to downtown Chicago. It's a less than two hour drive. They're like, oh my God. So far, I'm like, if I don't want to drive, there's a train that's two hours to get there. I'm like, I get, you realize, take the morning train. You're there before the store is open. You can do all the shopping you ever wanted, then take the train back in the evening. I, you don't have to, like, I don't, I can have a hole with a nice yard versus having a small apartment. You know, and that's what's kind of funny sometimes. Yeah. Now, you also brought up Canada and America, right? How we're both countries with a lot of space. Um, we do have a lot of similarities, I think. Very friendly people, underrated cuisine. Yeah. Questionable history with our native peoples. Uh, definitely. Yeah, I wouldn't even say it's questionable at this point. Yeah. <laughs> bad, bad, bad. Um, but what are some differences that kind of jump out at you? Because, well, sometimes for me, when people, because I'm, I don't know, I was born in Chile, then I went to Belgium, that's where my heritage is from, grew up in Canada, so sometimes, to make it simple, I just say I'm a Canadian, if people ask. Um, uh, you know, sometimes people will make jokes and stuff and be like, oh, like Canada, isn't that pretty much the same as the U.S.? Like, I don't really get offended. Uh, some, some people do. And, uh, I forget who the Will Ferguson, I think is their writer. And he kind of jokes about it. He's a very proud Canadian, but he's honest about some of the, the jokes. And he says, well, if Canadians really didn't like Americans, then why do all Canadians or like 80% of Canadians live? A hundred kilometers, right or less. Talking miles, seventy miles, yeah. or something from the border. Yeah. Um, but of course, there there are differences and everything. So, what 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 have you noticed? Well, like with this one, because I actually have a video on ways to piss off Canadians. You know, but it's but it's more like you know I call like ugly tours. You know, because just like little things people don't realize. And I don't say that people the Canadians get upset when people compare them to Americans. It's more that. Canadians get upset that you don't appreciate the differences and that Canada is a different culture. It is a different place. You know, and I, I think that that's where people really get the insult from. Not that you're Americans. Those are wonderful Americans. It's wonderful Canadians. It's just that, hey, we are, there are some differences. And, you know, we could go with the stereotypes, you know, like they're friendly. I mean, we're friendly too. You know, they, you know, they, there's these things. But I think that the differences for me, aside from like, you know, kilometers versus miles and then political systems, which are still very similar. Um, honestly, to me, if you look at the melting pot, I think Canada really promotes more keep your culture when you come to Canada versus the U.S. It was more make it a melting pot, assimilate to everybody around. And therefore, you'll notice like when you go to like the Chinatowns, the Little Italy, it definitely feels more like you're having that uh, like authentic culture, like back in the, the old country, much more in the Canadian parts versus the U.S. parts, just because... I don't know, because like U.S., like I said, it's more of a melting pot and Canada more is more Lego. We just put it all together, you know, and so therefore that kind of comes out. I mean, in general, like super big differences. I mean, I would say the difference between Canada and the U.S. is like the U.S. and Britain or Canada and Britain. I mean, it's like there's certain languages, certain words. Um, but in terms of culture, the, I mean, I, I feel that the difference is more like two brothers. It's like sibling rivalry. Between the two, you know, like little brother, big brother, and, and who's the big brother? Who's the little brother? Right there, will get people upset. You're like, look, there, there, there's enough similarities that when people want to travel, when they want to come to the U.S., I'm like, hey, you know what? If you can, if you can rent the car, they'll let you go across the border. If you're gonna do the Northeast, man, you gotta hit Montreal. You gotta hit Quebec City. And if you can get up to the Atlantic provinces, they're gorgeous up there. Nova Scotia, PEI, it's fantastic. And so that's why it's not gonna have a huge cultural difference, a huge like shock in terms of the thing. Because, you know, both of them make you tip. Both of them have, you know, sales tax or, you know, the GMT or whatever different stuff. 
So I don't really see a ton of differences aside from really like an attitude towards the differences, you know, like yeah. I think that's even to put it. Sense to it that there, there are differences in America. It's like this. Canadians will say there are differences and Americans will say there are differences because <laughs> we don't see it. Like people don't, in the U.S., people don't stress those differences, whereas you go to Canada, people want to show there are differences. So I think that's that's one difference, I guess you'd say. Yeah, yeah. Now, like, and then also, if you even if you look at the business world, like I've been doing a lot with um, Aaron Mayer's culture map, and she has these eight scales that you can go through, and um, they use a lot of time for cultural consulting. Um, now, I'm not going to get it all, all into it all in this episode, but one thing where Canadians and Americans are quite similar is the confront, uh, how confrontational they are. Um, Canadians, it says like slightly less, but really it's, if you look at all the countries distributed on, on that scale, they're, they're quite similar. And the reason I bring that up is because one don't that you mentioned for your American video is don't bring up politics and don't bring up gun control, right? And then I was... It kind of shocked me because online, you know, all you see is just Americans going at each other. You know, like nowadays, if you look at like anything, something cultural, it's all about this left-right divide. And I don't really like to get into that with culture and yeah. politics. Well, I, think, I think with that one, when I say like, I mean, it's more for, as a tourist, pretty much anywhere you go in the world, it's best not to talk politics. It doesn't matter if you're going to Peru or you're going to Germany, you're going to the U.S., because one of those things is you don't understand, if you're not from there and you don't necessarily understand the nuances and the information you do get when you're out and you're abroad is very different. That's why I like watching the news of different countries to see the different perspectives. That's why people are asking like, well, what do you think about this? I'm like, well, I, I need to know more. You know, like, let me let me see from nine different angles that I have a good idea of what's really happening because everyone's going to have their angle on it, you know? And so when it comes to talking politics or any any hot button issue, as a tourist, you probably don't know who feels what way. You don't know all the things that are going on because I can't possibly know all the stuff that's going on in Canada. I can't, you know, the, the Catalan and, and the independence movement there. Do I really know everything that's there? Because people will say, well, actually, you know, if you're looking at Barcelona, there's a lot of people that aren't Catalan that live in Barcelona because a lot of people move there. So that's a very different setup. And you know? so it's very difficult to really get into. And therefore, I, I just find it sometimes I want to make life easier for travelers. I'm like, look, it's best not to bring up the independence movement if you're going to be in Barcelona. You know, it's better not to talk politics in the U.S. because it can be a hot-button issue. And what happens is you'll see people online will go crazy on each other, and sometimes they'll go crazy against people that actually build, like are on the same like path as them. So that's why I'm like, hey, look, it's best to talk, you know, remember, talk about the weather and the food, and then you'll be okay. <laughs> and, well, just po politics aside, just this idea of getting into a discussion, right, like if uh, French people love a good discussion it doesn't have to be political related but they might just play the devil's advocate just because they they have a more confrontational society the dutch are like that as well um israel also like that and then it's just not done in many asian countries i don't want to generalize there but it does it does depend and as i said america kind of in the middle so what what would you have advice, not when it comes to politics, but just how confrontational Americans are? Do they like to have a good discussion in general, or is that something? I, that I, I feel that people used to really enjoy. Like I like I, I like discussion because I I want to know everyone's side. Like I might agree with you or not agree with you, but I still want to hear what you have to say because that helps me understand you better, right? And and right now in the U.S., sometimes that discussion isn't as civil as it used to be. Um, so that that's what makes it tough. But, you know, in the U.S., people, like, this one thing, if you're a tourist, 
you have kind of like a get out of jail free card. Because you're like, oh, you're not from around here. You don't know what's going on. So it allows you to ask questions. Like for me, that's why I'm going to, I'm going to be teaching in Barcelona this summer. And I know for me, I can, I could ask people like, so what's going on with the, with the independence thing? Like there's guys went to jail. Like I could, I know enough that I can ask a, a kind of a dumb question to get more information, you know, though I already kind of know what's going on, but you didn't have a way. And what I find interesting is that when you travel around, the people who want to talk to you, they won't be the rabid fans. They'll be like, oh, you actually have a, like an, uh, an objective question. And so I can answer in an objective way. Okay, so the reason why we're having this debate is because X, Y, and Z. Then they're saying, oh, I feel this way, but they'll give that foundation of what those you know, issues are. So then you can really understand why, oh, okay, those are the main issues people are talking about. And then, well, then it can go crazy after that, but at least gives you a way to learn. Because I've done that a lot of times. Like I remember I was in Austria as a student back in the 90s. And so one of our assignments was to go talk to over 70-year-old Austrian men. Now, if you do the math, over 70 in the 1990s, that means they were in the army in the 40s and 30s. And so ask we were supposed to ask their opinion on Austria and how are things today. It was very interesting to hear how many old, old Austrians were like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, the 30s. When we were back in power, and you're like, whoa, dude, that was not like, no, that's horrible. Like, you know, but it was interesting to, to see that, you know, you're like, you don't ask them. You're saying, hey, how are things different? And then it, you learn a lot more. Or you're like, oh, okay. I feel very uncomfortable right now, you know, but it, it's one of those things. It gives you a chance for people to like start talking about things in an objective way. And it's like, I mean, it was, that was the end by professor. I mean, this is one of those things, because I'm a professor now, I try to give my students those kind of questions to ask. You want to figure things out. I, I could tell you all day long that there's these things happening, but unless you experience it on your own, you won't get it. So I'll tell my students, like, we'll talk about pricing and we'll talk about you know, how companies will trick you into buying things or, or get you to feel like you need to buy more, you know? And so they don't see it. I'm like, oh, just this weekend, stop by this store. Just, just see what happens. Go look on the shelves. And they're like, they'll come back like, oh my God, you're right. You know, or we do one on service marketing. And back when Twitter was actually pretty popular, like in, 2014, 15, 16, 1000. Twitter was peak cool for college students. Now none of my college students use that like hardly at all. And like, I would have like a, a live Twitter feed on the bottom of the class, like running, you know, for questions and stuff. And we would do service market. I'm like, hey, what I want you to do is I want you to tweet at your, at a company that gave you bad service and see what happens. And something like 10% of the students would get free stuff in class. Cause it'd be a little clever. Like, oh, we're so sorry. Here's like, you know, extra you know, McDonald's cheeseburger, or here's a discount, or let us know your stuff. Now there, it, it, there's different things that come through, but it was interesting to see, like, huh, yeah, you can use that in a different way. But anyway, I'm, I'm getting off topic. Let's go. Oh, no, that, that's that's definitely off topic, Stella, because that's something I wanted to get into just so the listeners know, because, of course, Walter's World is really famous. Um, and then now, because the, the Professor Walter channel is a little is, is newer. Yeah. So I, when I first started making business videos, I actually just had excited. Like I, I actually had another YouTube channel before Walter's World, and I was making videos from. I was teaching in Portugal, and you know, for the exams, I wanted to help my students study better. And so I was teaching in Portugal, but we had to teach in English, but not all the students spoke English very well. So I wanted to make the videos so they could watch them and like the main topics. So like I knew what the exam questions were going to be, and they're always essays. So I'm like, yeah, it would be one of those you got to pick like four questions out of ten. You know, to answer in these essays. So I'd be like, okay, I would do like a video 
explaining the basics of all the 10 questions. So if someone wasn't sure, they had the video, they could watch those before the exam to have a rough idea. And so I'd have students, I, I had a bunch of Spanish students, they would drive, they were driving back from Lisbon to Madrid for like Easter break. And like, oh, we just listened to your videos to drive over and drive back and knew we knew what to learn. I'm like, awesome. So I saw that that was really helping my students that weren't native speakers. And so that kind of like started the learning stuff to help the students. And then over the years, I started making like more of the videos from the classes I taught. You know, and I would you know, do different things. You know, I moved to the University of Illinois where I am now. I mean, I had probably half my classes already filmed. You know, that'd be when I got here. And then I was like, okay, I need to update them and you make new versions of it. So I started making more. And so I probably had, or the three classes I teach, usually I probably had 75, 80% of all those classes already filmed. And then COVID hit and then everything went online. And so I had all this stuff already ready. So instead of the, you know, professor with his nose, the camera up their nose and the, the little like white square next to him, like, the, you know, the horrible teaching online that you have out there. Look, I mean, if you're going to be teaching online, don't do what's your head here in the corner and then the whiteboard or the PowerPoints. You got to do something different. Yeah. And so all my stuff, I film the videos like they don't have the, the PowerPoints aren't up there. It's more like a YouTube video where I talk about the stuff and then you can have the slides next to you by yourself to like help you get through it, but you don't need it. And so students really appreciated that because it was more like sitting down on the toilet watching five or six YouTube videos versus, oh, I have to watch a class today. You know, so it went, it went really well. I mean, I had a student, like these online classes during COVID, I, mean, I never got to see the students. You know, we do some live stuff, but you know, it's a class with 600 people. There's no, like the live isn't really live because they're, they're Zooming or whatever. So it's just like the black screen or how do you get to people? And this, this student, this, this lady comes up to me and she's like, Professor Walters. I'm like, hi. And like, I, I, I didn't recognize, like, I'm going to guess she was one of my students before. And she's like, yeah, I took your class online during COVID. I just want to say thank you. It was really good. I appreciate how you had that. I mean, this is three years later. She's like randomly seeing me at Target and telling me this. You know, like, all right. And so that's where I knew. Like, this is really helping people. And now, like, I go to conferences and professors will come up to me saying, hey, thanks. I wasn't sure how to teach this topic. I used your video to, for my students. You know, it's funny because, like, yeah, it, it's one of those double-edged swords. It's a very good compliment. Yeah, I showed your video to my 600-person class. I'm like... Oh, I got one view instead of 600 views in that video. But the thing is, how the Professor Walter's channel is set up, I want to help people learn. So whether you're a whether you're a podcaster in you know in Spain, or you're you're a kid in Thailand trying to sell something, or you're a mom starting an Etsy store, I want to give you the marketing skills I'll pass. So I started making all these videos, and if you actually go to professorwalters.com, I actually have it where you can click on it, and the videos are in a row for the classes. There's a you don't know anything about marketing? We have a principles of marketing course that goes through like 15 different topics. And each one of those topics has 10 to 12 videos. You know, social media marketing, we've got same thing, 10, 12 topics, 10, 12 videos for each topic to help you go through. And so we've kind of developed this to help people learn. And they know you're right. They, they, it's nowhere near as old or as, or as popular or as big as Walter's World. But in terms of companies reaching out to work with me, they actually find me through Professor Walters and they asked me to do training videos for them. Not because we have almost a million subscribers on YouTube. and No, it's because I liked your education stuff on YouTube. And there's a lot of people that make educational material, which is cool. But I'm also a PhD in one of the top business schools in the world. So it's not just some dude like, hey, I look, use ChatGPT to come up with these ideas. It's someone, yeah, I've done research. I've been teaching at a high level. I've won numerous teaching awards around the world. This makes it much more, hey, look you're going to get professional put together educational material. I was going to say, that's something that makes you stand out to me as well, is sometimes in the 
in the university setting, you have marketing teachers, marketing professors, they have their PhD, they know the theory. You sit in the class and you're learning about all this theory, which is great, but then it doesn't apply to what's happening right now. Yeah, I think that's something that makes you stand out, right? You have your PhD, you're a professor, but at the same time, you know a shit ton about social media and you can prove it with your own success yeah. with social media. Um, I think... <laughs> Could you talk to my boss when it's next time to ask for a raise, please? <laughs> get, get him on the show. Uh, but yeah, so just for some insight into this, because I think this is one of those rare cases where we could have someone who's like, okay, an actual professor knows what they're talking about and can kind of talk about what is happening on social media. And what is your opinion about the algorithms? Is there a way to use these to your advantage? What kind of, what kind of tips would you have for people to use the algorithms to their advantage? So a lot of people like to blame the algorithm. You know, it's like, it's the algorithm's fault. I'm not saying No, your, your content sucks. I mean, there's a lot of bad content out there right now. There's no filter on that. The filter is the algorithm. And I, let's say this, people that want to go viral and get huge quickly, you will not get huge quickly. It took me four, I mean, it took me four years to get monetized on YouTube. Four years. I have a very successful time. It took four years to get there. there and the, the requirements are a lot different now than they were back in like 2009 when I was, you know, 2008 when I was starting. But it took time to do that. And people don't realize it because they're looking for the instant gratification. You know, we look at... Um, Hofstede's model, right? Like long-term versus short-term out. Like the U.S. is all short-term. Right now, instant gratification. You only live once. Fear of missing out. All that stuff really works in the U.S. because people want now, now, now. And it's kind of interesting when you look at it, how many podcasts started in March and April of 2020? By August of 2020, there was something like a million active podcasts. By August, it was August or September of 2021, there was only 300,000. Because all those people that started during, they realized, wait, I'm not making any money at this. This is not a long-term viable solution, or they don't see it that way. And so they quit. You know, it's like right now, the, once people started doing the van life and traveling during COVID, there's a ton. I mean, I have so much new competition in the, in the travel sphere for people that are van life. We're going here. Here's my tips for this place or that place. There's a lot more out there. And so the algorithm's job is to figure out which ones are actually more successful. And it's hard to really figure out. And so what I always tell people is like, don't worry about the algorithm. Like people tell you, here's how to hack the algorithm. Look, the people at Google, I have students that work for Google. They are smart as hell. Okay. They're, I mean, think about TikTok. The algorithm for TikTok, it's like crack. I mean, once you get on TikTok, you're like, oh my God, where did the three hours go? What happened? Like their algorithm is unbelievable. And once Google figures out how they do that TikTok algorithm, we're never going to leave the computer again, you know? And so, but what it comes down to is like, what do you keep watching it for? It's entertaining. It's what I want to watch. It's something that's helpful for me. Are you making material that's helpful for people? Because here's the thing. You always want to think of this. It's called with them. What's in it for me? In your video, what's in it for them? Are they learning something? Are they being entertained? Is it, you know, is there a payoff? You know, that's what you have to think about. If you don't have that or you're wasting people's time, like why should someone waste 25 minutes to watch your video? Why should people spend an hour listening to your podcast? You know, like you have to give them something. Otherwise, they're not going to come back. And the algorithm sees that. They see, oh. People click on it and then they click away relatively quickly. This is not answering the question. What was the thing they searched for? This, you know, they, they clicked on this. This isn't there. And that's the problem is you do lots of clickbait or you try to do the hacks to get people there. But, but that, say with, without the algorithm, you that you're, you're, you're not actually delivering the material and then therefore it gets you lower in the algorithm. True. Well, one thing I do got to say with the algorithm though, it's for instance, especially in the educational frame on Instagram, for instance, I 
at the uh, I almost only follow educational accounts for language learning, um, some accounts related to psychology, and these are almost all word-based accounts, you know, with some attractive images. Um, and a lot of them are quite successful. And at the beginning, when I just started following these accounts, that's what I would get. Then one day I spent uh, a little bit of time watching surf videos. And then now, just because I'm human, you know, that surf video pops up. And of course, my eyes just go, go to it because the, the wave is more attractive than a couple yeah. of words. Yeah. And then now I hate Instagram because I, I'm on it and I don't learn anything. I just I just get these like with certain videos and yeah. I get all this shit that's just visual stimulation. Yeah. And then on YouTube, what's happened to me is like I, I, I watch a lot of travel videos. Uh, sometimes I do a lot, some research, right? And um, when it comes to culture and politics, um, I don't, I don't want to get too much into it, but like I have some pretty left-leaning views on a lot of things, but I try and get other views. So I just check out like Jordan Peterson. And I've yeah. watched one Jordan Peterson video, and now all the algorithm recommends me is conservative commentators. Yeah. I'm like, well, why are you recommending this to me? Because how, how the algorithm works, it doesn't look at your lifetime views anymore. It looks at the la what you did in the last three days. So if you watch that, and if that's a popular video that got watched a lot, they're going to go, oh, since you watched this in the last three days, and there's a lot of other people watching these videos, they funnel that to you. And then what happens is then that's what shows up in your feed. And sometimes if you just scroll on through it and lets it play, it thinks you like that. And then it goes through the next one, especially if you're looking at the shorts, you know, the reels kind of stuff, because those just play through it. They know people don't like or dislike them very much. That's why it's really important to click like and dislike, especially stuff you don't want. I mean, I'm like you. I was like, I want to have a full perspective. You know, I look on my stuff and I'll try other things. If you're right, and you'll be like, dude, I, I, you went a little far here. So the stuff is a little crazy for me. Or it also works the other way, like, you know, Star Wars Celebration. I don't know if you know, I'm a Star Wars fan. And they had Star Wars Celebration this weekend. So I watched like three videos on Star Wars, like the movies and TV shows are going to come out. Now my entire YouTube feed is just Star Wars stuff. I'm like, I like humor. I like science, not just science fiction. And so you get really funneled out. And this is why in social media, you do have that echo chamber where it kind of, you hear the same thing. And that's, that's, I think that's one thing that drives us actually more farther apart. So we think there's more people that are just like us. Whereas, no, we've put you with the people that are doing just like you or, or watching just like you. And so you don't get as many of the different, excuse me, different perspectives coming in. So that's why you have to make it a point. Like, I actually have different channels. So I'll have, like, I have, I have Walter's World, and I'll watch videos on that. And then I have Walter's World Shorts with my Shorts channel. And that one, I literally only watch comedy stuff on. Just so it just gives me comedy things. Like, I want, I want, I don't want to be, I don't want something stressful popping up. I just want to relax, watch some, you know, funny comedians, you know, come by. And it, that'll be on there. And then my professor Walters, when I'm logged into that, I only watch business stuff. And so that helps stay kind of, you know, separated. But then of course my kids will hop on, you know, I have YouTube premium, so they don't want the commercial. So they'll hop on my account and watch stuff. And then I'll have like 900 Roblox videos. Yeah. You know, it's like, I always tell like one of my kids been watching on my account. Cause I'm like, Oh, I've got a week of Roblox before it goes back to something else. Yeah. Well, uh, another question related to this too is, Let's say someone creates some new content, they're starting out, they're not getting any views. How can they figure out if it's their content that sucks and that's why it's not getting out there or they're just not promoting it in the right way and they haven't defined their, their market? Yeah. So I, I will tell this, you could have the greatest video. When you first start out, they just know it doesn't get pushed out to anybody. It doesn't get shown up. I mean, and here's what's great about social media advertising. It's so cheap. Even you just have 50 bucks to spend the 50 bucks to get it out there just to find people. And I will tell you, 
YouTube will tell you exactly if you spend fifty dollars, we will get you twenty five subs. They will get you. It'll be exactly twenty five subs. Like they know how effective it is. The problem is they know how effective it is. There's no extra bonus added on. They're like, you're gonna get ten thousand views for this. You're like, well, is it worth that much money? Well, if I'm trying to grow, maybe you do advertise. Um, but getting out there, I mean, one thing I always tell people is like, look, if you're not proud enough of your videos to share it on your own personal social media, like with your family and your friends, then are you proud enough of your product in general? If not, then why are you doing it? Like, that's why my, I, 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 on my videos, I'm always there. I want to help people. I want to give as much good information as I can. I have no problem sharing it. And when I first started teaching here at the University of Illinois, the first few years, I mean, Walter's World was was obviously nowhere as big as it is now, but it still was. I mean, we were on news channels and we were getting invited to you know interviews and stuff. And and people like I go into meetings, be like Walter's World, Walter's World, like they can find me for it. I'm like, yeah, that's right. Were you on ABC Nightly News with Diane Sawyer? Because we were. They're like, oh, were you in HuffPost? Were you in Washington Post? Were you in Wall Street Journal? Uh, no. I'm like, well then, good for yeah. you, know. And and, and I always tell them, look, it takes time. You know, like realize that, like, if you're going to be thinking about how much content you want to make, if you can only come up with 10 topics of content, it's not worth doing it because that's not going to be, you can do it for fun, but it's not going to be a career. It's not going to be a, a side job. You have to be able to make content because it will take you years to where you get to the point where you make it like enough money to make it worthwhile. It's a side job. That's why when I talk to people like, yeah, I want to, I want to quit my job and just do YouTube full time. Like, well, is your niche, is there a big enough niche? Like, I I mean, I could quit my job. I don't want to. I love my job. I also love insurance, you know, and retirement. They pay for it, you know? So there, there's those things as well. And I think that's one thing people don't realize is the time it takes. Because, you know, people go, oh, well, Mr. Beast, he went viral. That's what I'm like, no, Mr. Beast puts in a ton of work to get those views, to get those things doing. I put in, I mean, I, it's another full-time job running all these channels, doing all these things. Luckily, it's my hobby. Like some people, you have to realize, like this is this is a hobby that can overtake your life. Yeah, if you want it to be there, because I mean, they say, well, if you're going to do it, there's all kinds of really good uh, creators out there that help other creators. Like, look, if you're not willing to put in the work, like this is a real job, it's never going to be your real job. You got to be able to have that and put the, you got to have the, the, you know, the, do the grind, right? You got to put the time in to build up the things, learn your skills, getting better, because what you know today, like, one thing I would say is, you want to do a channel, start putting videos out. Yeah, your first 10 videos are going to suck, but you know what? The next 10 will be better. And the next 10 after that, I'll get better. And so you start to learn how to get better. Yeah, if you go to my channel, just like look up date and switch it. Look at the oldest videos. You're like, oh my God. That... I mean, I literally would put a, a, a Nikon Coolpix on a rock and I would just like sit on the ground and talk to it. I had no idea how to edit. Now I have, com I have companies that do my editing for me and I got a nice tripod and a camera and stuff. So yeah, it takes time. Would, would it be fair to say, let's say within the first year and someone feels like, no, my content is good. I am getting good feedback, but I'm only getting good feedback from this very small viewership than I, that I have. Right. And they're, they're a year into it and they're just they're, like me, like you put a lot of money into it, of course. Right. And then you think, okay, well, I don't see much of a progress here. The progress is just trickling in. You're like, I'm going to run out of money. What strategy would you give people to be like, okay, now it's time to change your content um, and maybe your content isn't as good as you think it is, or when is it time to move on, push it on different media channels? Or... Well, this is one thing. I always tell people, have as many revenue streams as you can. Because if you're doing a podcast, you should be on, you know, you don't just have it on Apple Podcasts. You have it on the podcast. Yeah. You put it on YouTube. And it's on there. You go to all the other video sites that are out there that'll let you monetize. You put it out there because you never know what people are going to watch. 
you know, people love launching out. Like we have all these vertical videos on YouTube. They do absolutely nothing on YouTube. Like I'm lucky if they get a few thousand views. But I put it on TikTok and we have quite a few videos with hundreds of thousands of views, the exact same video. I mean, I have a video that has over a million views on TikTok that has like 500 views on YouTube. Interesting. You know, and which I realized, how do you think that is? It's a different, it's a different algorithm. It's a different audience. And you got to think, where does yours work best? Because sometimes what you want to do is like, you have your podcast. What might be best for you to, to make it attractive for TikTok is cut out those like 60 second bids or minute and a half bids that, hey, this is a really good thing to get them to then come to the website or, mm -hmm. or, or go subscribe to the podcast. For some people, I love your podcast, but I just like watch the little bits. Like, like I watch all these, these comedians. I don't ever watch their Netflix special. I don't buy their album, but I do watch their 90 second like joke three times a day. So that could be another income stream. Yeah. Um, and, and that's just it. Don't be, don't think that, oh, TikTok's only for kids or Facebook is only for grandmas. You'll be surprised what people do well on different things. And that's why it's funny. Like you'll see people on Instagram will say, oh, I have 9 million subscribers on TikTok. And then they have like 30,000 on Instagram. I mean, look, I have almost a million on YouTube, but I only got like 28,000 on Instagram, like 14,000 on TikTok. It doesn't, those things don't transfer over. But that's where you try, like, hey, if you're going to make stuff that can work in multiple platforms, put it all over. There's no reason not to because it's free for you to upload there, and that can make you more money. That's one thing. I think also if your stuff gets stuck, like you're in podcasting, so, you know, have it so the people you interview, you make it as easy as possible for them. You send them uh, a square thing that they can put in their, you know, their Instagram posts or a Twitter thing, and here's the link to put in there. So it makes it as easy as possible. They just, oh, you give this to me? I'm just going to, uh, okay, upload. Boom, it's all right there. Here's the thing. Here's the text to put in there. You make it easier for them. And so it makes it easier for them to share. That helps get the word out a little bit more. Like, you know, I'm going to tell you, hey, when this goes live, send me the link. I'll put it up either on Monday or a Thursday because otherwise it gets cannibalized by our videos. So it'll be a post and, hey, check this out. Now, it's not going to get you a bajillion subscribers, but it might get you an extra 100, 200, 300,000 views. You know, and that's something. And if those, some of them will subscribe. And that's why collaborations a lot of times are fun and YouTube really, they used to push collaborations all the time. I didn't see a lot of benefit from it, but I always tried to work with channels, you know, smaller than me so that there wouldn't be much there, but it helped out smaller channels. And whenever I talk to channel, it's funny, like actually a lot of times when I talk to channels, my size are bigger or a little bit smaller. They never wanted to work with me. I don't know why it was really weird, but like even sometimes small channels, I'm like, Hey, you know, I like your stuff. And there's one, there's one specific, I actually filmed my part for them. I'm like, Hey, all you have to do is this. I'll put it, uh, it's one of my don'ts, it'll be a don'ts video with Europe in it. That's a video that will get probably 100, 200,000 views over the next few years. So it's going to evergreen content, you showing up, and they never filmed it. They ghosted me. I'm like, I would have jumped on that opportunity right away. Keep that in mind. <laughs> there's, 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 like those opportunities, when they come out, do that. Like someone say, hey, I really like your content. Write back to me. Someone bigger or someone small. Hey, maybe we do something together. And that can help build up your community. Also, make sure you're helping people out. If you're commenting on other YouTube videos or other podcasts, like have productive, don't say, hey, come watch my YouTube. No. You answer those questions and eventually people are like, wait, doesn't that guy answer my questions? Not only is his own channel. Oh, that's kind of cool. So there, there's those little things you can do to kind of build up your reputation, especially in the educational space. That goes a long way. Because a lot of educational ones, people get kind of jerky. And if you're a helpful answerer, it goes a long way. Definitely. Well, thank you. And uh, all the listeners right now, obviously, check out Mark Walter's channel. You can see how good his advice is just on the spot right now. This is all just verbatim, or uh, sorry, sorry, um, extemporaneous right now. So 
Uh, thank you for that, Mark. Now, another another question I have related to this and with culture is, is there anything that you pay attention to when you're creating videos um, and you want to attract people outside of America or outside of your, your main audience? Yeah. So when I, when I create my videos, I, I, my whole idea is I'm creating this for someone like me. I've lived all over the world. I've spent, I mean, it's, I mean, my, my life, it, like I moved so much, I never changed my address in the U.S. So I literally lived at my parents' house until I was about 40 officially because I moved so many, I was in so many countries and I was like, and I had to live with my parents since I was 18, you know? So I'm like, and I'm, I'm a little older than 18, let's say, okay? Like I, I'm older, I, I have more years than I have here on top of my head. And, and it, so it's like, oh, and one thing I would say, um, I lost my train of thought. Now I'm like, all right, and I just went away. What were we talking about? So you, just, so you were talking about moving around all over the place. You had your address at your parents' house. And I was asking when you create content, do you yeah, ever focus, again. like, do you ever yeah. change anything if you're trying to target a new... Well, honey, let me have my focus lost. We talked about focus. Uh, no, so what I want to do with mine, I look for people like me. They're from anywhere, they can be from anywhere in the world. And they just want, I want to go travel. I want to get something out of the culture. I don't just want to, I don't want to just do the bucket list. I saw the Eiffel Tower, check. I saw Petra, check. No. I, I mean, if I help those people, great. But I want people like, if you're going to go see that, no, what other culture stuff should you do? What should you expect when you're there? Like, I want to help people do that. So when they go and travel, they get more out of it than just a checklist. They get like a cultural learning. So I want to teach people what you need to know. So that's why our don'ts of travel, it's funny because people get on there, they'd be very upset. I came here to hate your video because you were going to say that what not to do in my city or my country. But actually, it's mostly what you do do. I'm like, yeah, but no one watches what to do when you're there. They watch what you don't do. So I'll, and what, by doing that, I give like, hey, don't forget to do these things, but also don't forget this. And so I can be very, about very serious topics. You know, if you're going to Jamaica, LGBTQ community, you got to be careful when you're there. It's a beautiful place, but it's, it, they are not LGBTQ friendly. Okay. And so I can talk about that, but I don't talk about that first. I can talk about these other things. And they're like, oh, but, you know, then I can lead that in because people right away, if you start with a punch to the face, they're not going to listen to you. But if you kind of like give them ideas, give them ideas, then a little punch on the shoulder, hey, FYI, they're like, oh, yeah, you're right. And that helps out. So I really want to train people because it help people because my goal is to give people the skills that they can travel on their own. Like you don't need a tour guide. You don't need to hire a cruise or something like that. You have the skills to enjoy this culture on your own. And here's the things to be ready for. So that's my kind of mindset. So what do people need to know? What's going to help them have the best trip? What's going to make it so... They don't get upset that there's nowhere to get food until noon or one o'clock in Spain, you know, or or they don't get upset in Portugal and they make you pay for the bread and the butter, you know, like little things like that, which I see people get really upset about. Like people will get so mad. Like I've been in Italy and people be so mad. I had to pay two euros to use the bathroom in Venice. Oh my God. I'm like, but didn't you have a fantastic time there? Was the food really good? Weren't the people super nice? Didn't you love the sights? You're like, well, yeah, but I had to, I'm like, you let two euros ruin your trip. You know, it's like, but if I let people know beforehand that we're, we're paying for the bread, it all or becomes something they're really upset with. It's more something like, oh, hey, I knew that. It actually makes it a positive that they knew that little cultural difference, a little cultural nuance they didn't know before. So that's what I'm really trying to do when I'm doing my prep work is really what is everything I would want to know so I can have the best time with my family when I travel or if I'm traveling by myself or with my buddies. That's what I'm going for. Definitely. I think that's something all the listeners should be aware of too with your don'ts videos or anyone talking about anything related to cultural competence. I write a lot about this on my blog and I talk a lot about it on the podcast as well. 
And whenever we're mentioning these don'ts or do's or any general um, cultural competence notes, it is it does generalize. And I think that's why sometimes people get pissed off because they're like, oh, this generalization doesn't relate to me. You're perpetuating stereotypes. But it's like, no, we're just using these generalizations just so you have an idea. Of course yeah. it can vary from situation to situation. Yeah, because my personal favorite is I've never seen this in my country or my city ever, so it doesn't exist. I'm like, well... Do you visit all parts of your country and all parts of your cities? Have you gone to these places? That's why it's very different. Like, I'll talk to people. It's like, sometimes it's better to talk to locals, and sometimes it's better to talk to travel people. Because if you're looking at hotels and sites, it's better to talk to travel people because they stay at hotels, they go to the sites, they evaluate the sites to let people know what to do. Whereas locals, locals don't go to the local museums. I've never been to the museum here in Champaign where I live. You know, why well, I actually have, but, you know, I don't know hardly anybody that's gone to the Champaign County Museum. And we actually have a wonderful art museum, the Cranor Art Museum here on campus. I've been there multiple times. I've seen like three people in it at a time. That's the max. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like people don't go to their locals up, but they go to Louvre. They go to, the, they go to you know, Prado. They go to those things. And so that's where I think outside travel people are much more helpful than locals. However, if you're looking for food and cultural advice and restaurants, locals win all the time because they eat the food all the time. They go out to eat all the time they'll know better than the travel person that went last year. And that's one thing for us. I never talk about what restaurants to go to. I always talk about what food you should have. I talk about the, here's the cultural food to have when you're there. And therefore you can find your own restaurant to eat that at. Because you know what? There's been like two times I've actually mentioned specific restaurants and videos. And both those restaurants closed like within six months of me making the video. I'm like, oh, so I'm like, I curse them. So I do not, I don't want to curse any more, any more restaurants. Yeah. Yeah, no, everything you're saying right now too relates to the the reference group effect, right? When we're talking about these don'ts, you have to keep in mind Mark Walter's reference, right? Or if you watch another video that might contradict some things, it's because it's from a different reference point. And that's why some people will watch as many videos as you can to get as much perspective. Because I will, like, before I go to a destination, I have my own ideas beforehand, but I'll read some like 100 blogs and watch 20 to 30 videos about it and go to the library and my local bookstore and look at the bar, like the, the Fromers, the Photos, the Lonely Planet, the National Geographic. I'll do everything I can. And then I'm still not filming. I still didn't go and then have my own experiences, but I have this background. And of course, we'll have different experiences. So I put in here, here's my experience as me doing this. He's out. Definitely. All right. Well, Mark, thank you so much for all of that. We're coming up on an hour here. Um, that was really helpful for me. I learned a lot from you already. I'm looking forward to following more on uh, the Professor Mark channel as well. I'll definitely be keeping Thanks, an eye on it. Uh, Mark, anything else you want to mention to the listeners as a final note here? Sure. If you want to learn about the do's and don'ts of travel, you can find us at Walter's World, W-O-L-T-E-R-S World. It's on YouTube, Pinterest, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn. We're pretty much in all the places you can find us there. And if you want to learn more about business education for free, you can go to our YouTube channel, Professor Walters, or you can go to professorwalters.com, and we have everything set up there just as a class ready for you to learn for free. And you can find all the links in the description. I'm also going to provide all the links to Mark's website and his channels as well. So you can find that on whatever listening platform you're listening to right now. So thanks for tuning in. New episodes every Tuesday.